Amen. I hope that you will turn with me in a Bible to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 3. 1 Corinthians, chapter 3. And our focus today will be on verses 16 to 23. The Apostle Paul is writing to a deeply fractured church, a church that is split between some who favor this leader over that leader. Some people are saying, I'm on Paul's team. He came here first, he came to this city, he planted this church, and I'm going to remain loyal to him. There are others who say, no, 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 this new guy, Apollos, he's way flashier in the pulpit. I want, to, I want to be on his team. He's way more eloquent than Paul. And some others are saying, no, I'm, on, I'm above all that. I'm on Jesus' team. And some are saying, no, I'm with Peter, Cephas, a deeply fractured church. And Paul's response to them is to say, you've got it all wrong. You've got it all wrong. First, by even having these disagreements, you guys are demonstrating your immaturity. You still don't get it. You're still infants in Christ, and your jealousy and your quarreling reveals that. You're acting like mere human beings when you've been given the very Spirit of God. Don't sell yourself short. And he compares the church to a field, and he says, Apollos and I, we're, we're just God's field hands. We're nothing. This is God's field. We can't take any credit for what's happening here. God is the one who grows his church. And then he shifts to an architectural image. He says, you're God's building. And there's only one foundation for God's building, and it's Jesus Christ. No one can lay any other foundation than that which has been laid, which is Jesus. And he says, everyone who tries to build on that foundation should be very careful how they build. Because everything that you do and everything that I do, everything that we build on top of that foundation will be tested by fire, by God's judgment, his great and terrible judgment that awaits this entire world. And God's fiery judgment will expose whether we built with what truly lasts. Faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these being love or whether we just built with straw, with our own selfish human ambitions. But when we come to verse 16, we see that Paul clarifies, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, that this building, the church, is not just any building. This is none other than the temple of God. Look around you. Seriously, look around you. Behold the temple of God. The temple of God, yes. And what Paul's going to show them is that they are shortchanging themselves because every true church is a rich church. Every true church is a rich church. And every true Christian is a rich church person because of this truth. No matter 
how much or how little is in the bank account. No matter how ornate, no matter how large or small our building might be, no matter how full or how empty the pews might be, if this is a true church, then it is a rich church. Do you believe that? A rich church. And the key thing for us to see here is this. If you don't hear me say anything else, hear this. Never, ever underestimate, never, ever underestimate God's desire to display the riches of his grace. God's desire to display the riches, the abundant, immeasurable riches of his grace. On people like you and me. Using what the world regards as unusable. The world says this is the temple of God. These are his riches. Oh yes, says the believer. The riches of his grace are on full display. And I can give testimony this morning that the riches of his grace are in full display that someone like Dane Hadley is opening up the word of God behind this pulpit to you. I didn't earn this. I don't deserve this. I'm here only by his grace. And if you belong to the Lord Jesus, if you truly know him, then you only know him by his grace. You can't take any credit for it. You don't deserve it. So never underestimate God's desire to display the riches of his grace, his sovereign, free, rich grace, using what the world regards to be unusable. May we be deeply, deeply encouraged and fortified by this truth. As we read together, verses 16 to 23. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. These verses divide neatly between what we see in verses 16 to 20 and what we see in verses 21 to 23. In verses 16 to 20, we see what the church is. What the church is. And in verses 21 to 23, we see what the church has. What the church has. So, what is the church in these verses? 
Paul says, don't you know? And when the apostle uses that language, don't you know? It's a mild rebuke. You guys should know this. I've told you this already. This isn't the first time you're hearing this. Don't you know that you are the temple of God? The temple of God. What is the church? It is God's dwelling place. God's dwelling place. And here's what we need to understand. When Paul is is using this language about God's temple, he's utilizing rich biblical imagery. Going back to the Old Testament. We know that God is omnipresent, right? God is everywhere. And God cannot be confined to any one space. But, does God show up everywhere? No, he does not. God has sovereignly chosen to show up, to make his presence known in very specific ways and in very specific places over the course of history. And we see God showing up to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs in specific places, and they built an altar. But this especially becomes true when God redeems his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and he parts the Red Sea for them. He rescues them from Pharaoh and his chariots and his army, and he brings them into the wilderness on their way to the promised land, and he promises to show up in a very particular way. It happens to be the name of this church, which is Tabernacle. Tabernacle. This has a very specific biblical reference. What was the tabernacle? It was, in practical, tangible terms, just this tent that they could break down and and assemble as they were on the move in the wilderness. But more importantly, it was the meeting place between God and his people. This is where God promised to show up. God's dwelling place. Well, eventually, as God's people move into the promised land, they become more settled, and they want a more permanent dwelling place for God. And so God allows David's son Solomon to build a temple Not just a tabernacle, not just something movable, but a permanent temple. And God promises to show up there. But the people of Israel knew, God, no temple, nothing created by human hands could ever confine you or contain you. We recognize that, but we praise you, God, that you have promised to show up in this way. And he did. But over time, that temple was destroyed as the people of Israel were conquered by one nation after another. And eventually another temple was built in Jerusalem called the Second Temple by Herod the Great. This is the temple that the Lord Jesus entered into and walked through and taught in and cleared out. But eventually that temple was destroyed by the Romans. And what Jesus said, and one of the things that, that he said that really, really bothered people And they just couldn't make sense of it. This is what they charged him with. They said, this man says he's going to destroy this temple. Look at this thing. Do you see this temple? This man's going to destroy that? Do you know how long it took to build that? And Jesus says, not only am I going to destroy it, in three days I'll rebuild it. 
What? This guy's crazy. Crucify him. Away with him. This is blasphemy. But we know what he really meant. And what did he really mean? He said, his body, the person of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, he is the temple. This is God's dwelling place now. And not only that, all those who belong to him, all those who have been filled by his spirit are likewise his temple. And this is what Paul means. All of that biblical background is compacted into what Paul says here. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And he will later in chapter 6 say, each individual Christian is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, be careful with it. Be careful with it. But here he's using you plural. Y'all, as we say around here, y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit of God dwells in your midst. Never forget that. You want to see where God shows up? Gather with people in the name of Jesus. And he promises to show up. <laughs> Do you realize that? Sometimes when we come to church, you know, well, we're not super enthusiastic. We don't know what might happen. Maybe, maybe Dane will be boring this week. We don't know. Or maybe it'll be long. Maybe the music will be like we like it. Maybe it'll be familiar. Maybe it's not. And we have all these expectations. But Above all those other expectations, I pray that your expectation is this, that you will meet the living and everlasting God among his people. Amen? May that be our heart's desire, because he's promised to show up in churches just like this. What else can we say about the church? It's God's dwelling place, and it's God's holy possession. God's holy possession. For God's temple is sacred, we read in verse 17. Literally holy, and you together are that temple. God's holy possession. Meaning that these are the people called by God to be separated out of the world. Still very much in the world, but not of the world. To be distinct to be different in the midst of this world that is in open rebellion against its creator. This world that is so fallen, so depraved. Just read the news today and you'll see this all, every, you'll just see it everywhere. Just read one headline, you'll see it. Everything that's happening is tainted by the sinfulness of this world. And it's not a great mystery to us. We know why the world is this way. Because this is a fallen world that has transgressed what God has said and revealed. But the church is to be different. Yes, there's plenty of sinfulness in this room. There's plenty of sinfulness here in this pulpit. But there's also to be more than that. We're not mere humans. We're filled with the very Spirit of God. And when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in the believer. In you and in me. He cleans house. <laughs> and if you don't know that he cleans house, then you don't know him and he's not living in you. The Holy Spirit cleans house. He changes what you love. The things that you once craved 
and wanted so much. Now you see, in comparison with Christ and the glory of God and the glories of his kingdom, what is that stuff? I don't want that anymore. I don't want to live that way anymore. I don't want to pursue those things anymore. I want Christ. I want to be found in him. The Holy Spirit does all that to show that the church is God's holy possession. But we can't stop there. The church is also a display of God's wise plan. God's wise plan. We, the world, we think we know what true wisdom is, right? And we revel in our scientific methods. We revel in human discovery. We revel in human ingenuity. And God confounds it all. And how does he do so? Paul says, do not deceive yourselves. Don't lie to yourself. Wake up. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, this fallen, depraved age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. The very best, the very best of human wisdom will always be tainted by our own pride, arrogance, and sinfulness. God is infinite. We are finite. Never forget that. God is wise. And if you want to know real wisdom, then you must become a fool. You must become a fool. Are there any fools in this room today? How do we become a fool? Well, it's not by our IQ, our our intelligence. It has to do with the gospel. As he says in chapter 1, verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate True wisdom starts by recognizing the cross of Jesus Christ as the ultimate wisdom of God. The world can't understand that, can it? The world looks everywhere but to Christ to find the answer for what ails us. But in Christ crucified, here, is true wisdom. Here are the riches of God's grace made available for sinners like you and like me. True wisdom. He has become for us wisdom. And you must become a fool to accept it. And you can only accept it because the Holy Spirit of God is working in you and through you enable you to see that, that man who's crucified who's lived a life that I have not lived and will not live, that man crucified, he's dying as my substitute. He's absorbing in his body the penalty that I deserved for everything that I have said and done that I should not have, for all my failures to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, for all my failures to love my neighbor as myself, he bore the penalty And this is God's wisdom. 
God delights in confounding human wisdom to, to show you think you have the answers, you think that you're smart, you think that you're really something. Here's how I'm going to show what true wisdom is. Christ crucified. The Son of God dying as a criminal in your place and in my place. Are you willing to humble yourself today to accept true wisdom? It doesn't matter about your IQ. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are or not. True wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord looks like saying, that man crucified is my only hope. My only hope at the judgment seat of God. Do you believe that? So, the church is God's dwelling place. The name of our church reminds us of that, the tabernacle. It is God's holy possession. It is God's wise plan. Therefore, heed the warning in verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. Don't mess with God's church. This is his temple filled by the Holy Spirit. And no one, I don't know anybody that says, well, I want to destroy God's church. I mean, yeah, some, some people maybe, you know, have so much resentment against organized religion that they, they want to, and they're glad when churches suffer. But I think most people say, I, I don't really have a problem as long as they don't really interfere with my life too much. I don't want to destroy God's church. And people in the church would say, oh, sure, I don't want to destroy God's church. So what is the warning here? Remember, he's writing this to Christians, to people in the pews, so to speak, people in the church. And he says, if anyone destroys God's church, God will destroy that person. Here's what we need to remember. If you try to manipulate God's church to use it for your own personal profit or gain, for your own personal prestige, to enjoy your own personal preferences. You are guilty, my friend, of destroying God's church. Don't mess with it. Don't trifle with it. If anyone twists or distorts the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message, by preaching any other gospel, if I preach any other gospel, I should be cursed. I am rightly cursed by God because there is no other gospel. There is only one gospel. And it's Jesus Christ and him crucified for sinners like you and like me. Don't try to manipulate the church. Don't distort the message of the church. But I fear we may be even more guilty of this than anything else. Simply ignoring the church. Just ignoring it. Just taking it for granted. We're not actively seeking to manipulate anybody or profit from the church. We're not distorting the truth or the gospel. But eh, we can take it or leave it. And as you know, this particular season that we are in right now is a season of sifting. It's sifting in the world. It's sifting in the church to show who's in the church and who's not. Who was merely filling a pew who was merely on the membership role? Who was merely in the church but not of the church? That's happening right now. 
And so many people think that they can get church, the riches of God's grace, the, the fullness, the temple of God on YouTube or Facebook. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm thankful for YouTube and Facebook. It's great. It's a great resource to proclaim the gospel. We want to get the gospel out there. But there is no substitute for gathering in person, in the flesh, with brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? There's no substitute. And while, yes, particular seasons during a pandemic call for extraordinary measures, God knows that. But don't ever think that there is any substitute for this. The riches of God's grace displayed in people like you and like me. Foolishness in the eyes of the world, but the wisdom of God displayed. A season of sifting. But so many think, maybe I don't need to go back to church. Maybe it's not that important that I go back to church. I can take it or leave it. Maybe I have better things to do with my time. Maybe I can actually enjoy two full days of weekend. And look, I'm a pastor. I get that. I get that. It's really nice. But I'm telling you, one day in the house of God is better than a thousand days elsewhere. Do we truly believe that or not? May we believe it. Don't ignore the church. Don't take it for granted. It is the temple of God filled by the very Spirit of God. But now, as we come to verses 21 to 23, we take inventory. What the church has. What the church has. The riches. There is so much encouragement. I'm I'm so excited to, to, I want to read these verses again. Take inventory, realize what we have in our midst, friends. So then no more boasting about human leaders. Who cares about, a, about Paul or Paulus? All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. It's already yours. All of this, all of this. The riches of God's grace. Do you understand? When was the last time you took inventory of your spiritual riches in your personal life or in the church? This is what we already have. Don't shortchange yourself by fixating on a Paul or Apollos when we've been given the world. Now, let me look around and say, we have it all, Really? I don't see it. I have it all. What's he talking about? I'm not rich. To understand the logic of what Paul's saying, we have to go to the very end of verse 23. He ends with God. God. God is the creator of all. Therefore, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. All of it, because he created it. But this world has rebelled against him, and so he sent his one and only Son to redeem the world, to redeem his people. And this means that Christ is now Lord of all, because 
he has lived a life of obedience that no one has ever lived and no one will live. He has died in our place. And God has vindicated his sacrifice by raising him to eternal life so that death can't touch him anymore. And now he has the right, the right to judge you and me and the entire world. As we read in Philippians 2, Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, this is God's vindication, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that is the dead, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name of Jesus stands above history, Lord of all. Even though so many in the world have no idea who the true Lord is, it's still His. They just don't know it yet. Your heart belongs to Him, whether you know it or not. It's all His. And Christ is of God. Christ belongs to God. Therefore, everyone who belongs to Christ shares in the riches of Christ. Do you see the logic? All belongs to God. He created it. He sustains it. All belongs to Christ because he's conquered it all, death itself. Therefore, everyone who belongs to Christ has everything. You're rich if you belong to him. You're rich. You have the world. The world. Look no further. It's yours. We know how to appreciate this world. When we go outside, we know that the glory of God is crying out in the sunshine, and in the rain. And we know where this world is going. We know where history is moving. It's moving toward the return of Jesus. And we know that we have a purpose in life. We have work to do in this world. And that's why life and death belong to us. Life and death. You have life. You have a purpose. You have meaning. You have significance because of what Jesus has done for you. Not because of anything you've earned, but because of Him. And death, oh, how we try to avoid death at all costs. We want to prolong life as long as possible. We don't want to talk about death. We don't want to think about death. If you belong to Christ, you don't have to fear death. You know that death for the believer is the beginning of a glorious transformation. So that in this life we have sorrow, we have hardship, we have tears, we have disease in this body. But our death, the death of the believer, is the transition to a glorious body that will one day be resurrected in the likeness of Jesus Christ so that cancer can't touch it. So that there are no more tears no more disease. Don't fear death if you belong to Jesus. Yes, you will stand before the judge, as we all will, but you know that judge is your friend. 
You know him already. Life or death, or the present or the future. The present and the future belongs to you. The present. All that is right now, all that will be. We have it all. It's already yours. Wake up and take hold of what Christ has purchased for you by His own blood shed on the cross. How dare we complain about what we don't have? How dare we think that we're poor when we have this, all this. We have a present task, we have a present work to do, and we have a future hope. So only one question remains. Do you belong to Christ or not? If you do, it's already yours. Enjoy it. Be encouraged by it. Live for it. Spend what you've been given. But if not, you have nothing. But it can be yours today. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what you've done or haven't done, all this can be yours in Christ. Just trust Him. Say yes to Him. Surrender your life to Him. Say, God, here is my heart. Here is my life. Here are my plans. Here are my hopes for the future. It's all yours. Have it. And enjoy the riches of His grace. Enjoy it. Revel in it. This is a rich church. I believe that with all my heart. This is a rich church filled with rich people all because of His grace. May we never get over it. May we never get over it. May we never take it for granted. Amen. Let's go to Him in prayer. Lord, we thank You for this reminder of who we are and of what we have. Lord, forgive us for when we underestimate you and we underestimate your plans, we underestimate your purposes, and we underestimate your church. Lord, we don't want to do that. Lord, in these next few moments, may we dedicate, may we consecrate everything that we have for your glory. May your Holy Spirit come and consecrate us to your service. May we leave this place feeling emboldened and empowered to serve you, to be your people, to reflect your light and your love, to be what you have told us we are, the salt of the world, the light of the world. Lord, may our light shine brightly, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.